1997, I graduated from college and I moved to Tennessee with a friend of mine, <clears throat> my friend David. And we were going to see how far we could get in the music business. That was our plan. So we moved up there. We moved into this little house and uh, were experiencing what it was like to live in Tennessee. And as a Texan, when you're not in Texas, you're always very aware that you're not in Texas. We've, we've just got that Texas state of mind. And so I remember one day, you know, there were many things where I, where I came to be aware that I was no longer in Texas, and I went through, through a drive-through at a barbecue place. So I go to this barbecue place, and I order two barbecue sandwiches, and I was going to just sit there and eat them in my car. I remember it was cold outside, and I opened, or it was raining outside, and I opened the bag, and there was barbecue sauce in the bag, and it was in those little containers that they normally put the barbecue sauce in. And I looked at it, and I was like, that's weird. That doesn't look like barbecue sauce. So I took the lid off, and I t- tasted it, and it was vinegar. I was like, this gross. <laughs> so I opened the, open up the, unwrap the sandwich, and I take the, and I, it's, it, I open up that uh, bun, and there's pork in it and coleslaw all over it. Now, I had always thought that a brisket sandwich or barbecue sandwich was, was chopped brisket and there should be a couple of pickles on it. And then you put that brown sauce on there that tastes like barbecue sauce. But they'd given me that vinegar and that, and I didn't, even, I didn't even like coleslaw back then. My palate is more refined now. And I like cabbage and mayonnaise a lot better, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but I was shocked. <coughs> uh, and, I, and I'll never get over how I, I just had this feeling, like I wanted to drive back through the drive-thru and just throw that coleslaw at the... What are you doing putting coleslaw on a barbecue sandwich? But you know, over time, uh, longer I lived there, I started to really like that gross sandwich. And I would go, <laughs> I would drive through and get that nasty sandwich, pour that vinegar all over it, and go to town. And I probably still would like one of those sandwiches if, if I was there in Tennessee. But thankfully, what we think about barbecue, whether it should be chopped beef or sliced beef or pork, um, you know, it's not very consequential. You can enjoy Tennessee barbecue, and you can enjoy Kansas City barbecue, and you can enjoy uh, whatever they make there in Louisiana, and you can enjoy Texas brisket. And it doesn't matter. But for those of us who are believers, who have come to know the brisket of heaven, we cannot become conformed and focused and satisfied with the pulled pork of earth. I really did write that down. It's right here. (laughs) So if you'll follow my crazy analogy this morning, how do we keep our Texas state of mind while living in Tennessee? That's kind of what the sermon's about. How do we keep our Texas state of mind when we live in Tennessee? Or in other words, how do we maintain a heavenly state of mind while we're here on earth? How do do we maintain a focus on the things of heaven while we're surrounded with the things of earth? And the answer is, we focus more on who we are and what Christ has done for us than where we are and what surrounds us. Okay? We need to remember who we are 
not just think about where we are. When my identity is in Christ, when I am focused upon the reality of God's plan for me, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. When I'm focused on God's plan for me, the things of earth will just be things that I have. They will not be things that have me. The question is, do you have your things or do your things of earth have you? For the believer, the old self derives identity in the things and in the ways of this earth. But when you trust in Jesus, what you are saying is, <coughs> I'm putting off that old way of being and I'm putting on a new self. And I'm being renewed in the knowledge, when, as I grow in the knowledge of who Christ is, as I grow in the knowledge of God's holiness and character, then I am made, moment by moment, more into His image. Let's look at our text today, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. That's kind of a summary of it, but let's take a look at the text. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let's talk about seeking and setting. Seeking and setting. Sometimes when I read a passage like this and I think, how am I going to preach this? I'll kind of go through and just look at what I'm being commanded to do. <clears throat> Where are the verbs, you know? Seek, set. And we're going to get into some other things here, but these are good ones to focus on. If then you have been raised with Christ, if then, remember we talked about that. We've talked about that we're dead. With Christ, we've died with Christ. We've been raised to walk in a new way of life. We talked about that in terms of baptism. We talked about that in terms of not being caught up in man-made rules. And if we've indeed been raised with Christ, he says, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. <clears throat> what does that mean? You know, <clears throat> I heard a story. A guy said, a little kid came back from, from church and said, Mama, you know, G, uh, God can't go anywhere because Jesus is sitting on his right hand. He can't go anywhere. So we, we, you know, we can hear these things you know, and we think, well, what, what is, what's being said to us there? Because you can't describe God or his power or his authority in human language. You could never do it. And you would never do it justice. So God, when he's trying to tell us what he's like, he has to put it into our terms. We can understand the power and authority of a throne, can't we? We can understand rule and reign of a king. And so what we're told here is that, you know, we, we think above, you know, where God is, but we know God is everywhere. The, the, nothing can contain God. Uh, 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 God is everywhere. When we think of the above, when we think of where Christ is, what we're to think about is the highest power and authority that there is. What this is of giving us a picture of God rules God reigns. Set your mind. Seek after the things that are above. Seek after God rule. God reigns. That's what we're being told to do. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. So those are two parallel verses. They're really saying the same things, aren't they? Pursue. Strive. Go after as hard as you can the rule and the authority of God in your life. Concentrate. With your mind, set your mind, concentrate on the things of heaven. Be heavenly minded even though you're here on earth. <clears throat> Just before I graduated from college, speaking of those days, as I began to think about them, 
Before I graduated from Howard Payne in 1997 and moved all the way to Tennessee, uh, Melissa finally agreed. Just right before I left, she, she agreed to go on a date with me. It took a lot, you know, that was a lot of work to get that date. She turned me down, but previously, and I don't blame her, smart. <laughs> but we went on some dates, and we would, we would, what we would do, our dates, uh, we found these places where, where we could go dancing. You know, and so when you're like Baptist kids at a Baptist college, you got to be really careful where you dance, unless you go to Baylor. But... Uh, <clears throat> They don't care there. It's too many kids. So what we found, where we found you could dance was that there were these places that would have uh, dances for senior citizens. And they would play old classic country music, and we would go out to these little places, these little halls, community centers, and they had good music, and they always had really good snacks. And I was like, this is way better than dancing in a nasty bar. So we would, we would go out there and dance and eat snacks and talk with the old people. And then they would, the one time they cut in, that these two old people cut in on us. And I was like, this is weird. And uh, the lady started dancing with me. And she said, we, uh, we just thought y'all were getting a little bit too close to each other. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so we realized that we were being chaperoned by the whole group there every time we were at the dance hall. But well, we'd gone on these dates, and we had, we had determined and discovered that we really liked each other, but I was already planning to move to Tennessee with my friend David. And so when I got up there to Tennessee, there was a big part of my mind that was still really concentrating on what was left in Texas. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really concentrating on music or working uh, or eating sandwiches. <laughs> My mind was really focused and concentrating on Melissa because I was thinking, what would it be like if we got married and we could be together forever? What would that be like? And I just thought about that all the time. Maybe you remember those days of, of that kind of infatuation of, of just your mind being preoccupied with your sweetheart. Well, what Paul's calling us to here is a similar kind of preoccupation but our mind to be preoccupied with the things of God. And Paul mentions those things that should be our focus. Look at verse 1. You've been raised with Christ. Your Savior, Jesus, reigns over the universe in sovereignty. And then look at verse 3. He says, for you have died, which reminds us of Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, you've died. It's no longer you living, it's Christ living in you. And your life is hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now that would have been a key word. That idea of being hidden meant intimacy. You've been, you've been wrapped up in God, you know? It's fun, you know, uh, I shouldn't say it's fun, but they used to, I used to stay on Wednesday nights whenever we were doing benevolence. I would stay, and, and I didn't mind if, if, if the benevolence sessions after church went really long, so I would say, well, you know, the longer I stay here, the less I'm gonna, chance I'm going to have to do bath night, because Emerald always needed a bath. This was a long time ago, 10 years ago. And... Uh, and now, you know, I, 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 you know, you kind of miss those days, and then you wind up with another baby in your house. And you know, it's always fun to hold a baby when they're wrapped up in that giant towel, and you're holding that baby, and they're they're wet and they're warm. 
because I just got out of the, you remember that feeling? Well, I'm getting to have it again, so nanny, nanny, boo-boo, right? Uh, <clears throat> I thought those days were over, and then, you know, I'm holding this bay, I did it last night, and just wrapped her, and she was just so, just enveloped in that towel, you know? And what a sweet, what a sweet feeling. It's just, and then you, and you take that baby wrapped up in that towel, and you wrap that baby up in your arms. That's how we are. We're hidden with God in Christ that way. We're wrapped up in him. And that's why Paul's saying, hey, when you're wrapped up, when you're so closely identified with Christ that you're hidden and wrapped up in him, you got to be real careful where you, where you take that. He said, what, what, does, what, does, what does a believer have to be uh, going into a temple where they worship idols? What does a believer have to do joining himself to a prostitute? He's saying to the believers, you're so identified with Christ that where you go, he goes. You're taking him everywhere you go. We're hidden. With, we, we have that kind of intimacy with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. <clears throat> I said that backward a second ago. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Then we look at f- verse 4. We see that not only are we raised with Christ and he's reigning forever, and our life is hidden with him and we're dead, but he says, and when Christ, who is your life, Christ is your life, when he appears... Now, why don't you underline that word? That's interesting, right? When, when Christ appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What's he talking about there? Is he talking about just when you die? No. He's talking about the fact that Jesus is going to come again. Jesus is going to come a second time. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, they've just watched Jesus ascend into heaven after he's given them his final words and he says, uh, Luke says, when he, Jesus had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He left and went up. He's going to come back the same way. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13. Waiting. What are we waiting on? Waiting for our blessed hope. What is your blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is right there, uh, uh, Jesus being called God. How about that? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. What are we doing? We're living in a certain way as we wait. Now, evangelicals have been talking a lot lately about all the turmoil in the Middle East. And if you came to me and you said, what does it mean? You know what I would tell you? I don't know. No man knows the day or the hour. I'm not going to speculate. And I think back to when I was a boy and growing up in the church, and I remember a lot of the dispensationalist teachers would come in, and they would bring in these boards, these, these big like plywood or canvas boards, and they would set them up in the sanctuary, and they would tell us, here's exactly how the world is going to end. You know, and it would frankly just scare us to death. 
as they would, would tell us. They would try to explain how it was all going to end. And, uh, and then it seems like the way they just thought, well, this is this, you know, the world was going to end like in, you know, sometime probably in the late 80s, I guess is what we were all thinking. But here we are, you know. And I tell people, don't you think that when the Civil War started, people thought, this is it. And whenever World War I started, they probably thought, here it is, it's Armageddon, you know. And when World War II started, they probably thought it was, we're always going to think it's the end of the world, okay. And Jesus said, you're going to hear about wars, and you're going to hear about rumors of wars, you're going to hear about earthquakes and famines, and he said, but it's still not the end. We always leave that part off. <laughs> but the end is still yet to come. Now, are you living in the last days? Are you living in the last days for sure? Yes, because you're living in the days after Jesus came. So we're in the last days. We just don't know how long the last days are going to last. But these are the last days. And there's disagreements over this. We could go through the line down in this church, and we can have some people that will say, I think it's going to happen this way. I think the millennium means this. I think that physical Israel means this. I think physical Israel means this. I don't think the millennium means this. We could have all these disagreements. We don't make that an issue here of fellowship. Because there can be, you know, people. I have heroes that love the Lord that disagree on eschatology. Eschatology is the theological word for the end times. But you know what there's no disagreement about among anybody? All the views agree on this. Jesus is coming again. Jesus will come again. Everything else is just details, Adrian. Y'all remember that from Rocky too? Okay. <laughs> so, so Rocky and Adrian are looking at a house. You remember Martin, Rocky and Adrian looking at a house, and she's, you know, he's like, this looks great, you know. And she's like, Rocky, we haven't even seen the upstairs. He's like, it's just details. I'm sure it's nice. Well, that's, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about the end times. When it happens, it's going to happen, and God's going to do it. It's going to be great, whatever it is. We were talking about this the other day. We went to the associational meeting, and Dan made the joke. You know, he said, well, maybe we all just ought to be, what is it, a pan? What, what do they call it? A pan, what is it? I can't remember, pan-millennial, pan-millennialism or whatever. He says, it's, it's all going to pan out in the end, is uh, the way it is. And it will. You know, but Jesus is coming back, and the rest really is details. Because if you believe that Jesus is coming back, that means that you believe he came the first time. That when you believe Jesus is coming back, that means you understand why Jesus had to come. So Jesus coming back is a pretty important aspect of our doctrine and of our life, because if we say there's a second coming, well then what was the first coming for? It was to meet your greatest need which is you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. Your greatest need is not to know how the world's going to end. Your greatest need is to know a Savior. And if you know a Savior who came the first time to save you and you know he's coming back again, hey, it might happen in our lifetime. I mean, imagine if right now, I've, always, I've thought about this, I think I've even told you, so now this will spoil it, but I thought if I'm ever preaching on this and I've just never had the guts to do it, it's just to, like, get one of these kids that plays the trumpet. <sighs> and say, okay, I'm going to be preaching. And when I say this certain word, like Rocky II, or I don't know, <laughs> like that, you just be up in the balcony. You blow your trumpet as loud as you can. And then to say, and so we can imagine if that happened to say, okay, were you ready for that? Were you living in such a way that you're going to be ashamed of the way you're living and the way you're thinking and what you're doing when that last trumpet sounds? Or should we always be living in a way that we will welcome that trumpet? 
we will welcome that. Because that, can you just imagine that ringing out? We don't even. We probably can't even fathom what kind of trumpet that will be. It probably won't sound like a coronet from Olney High School, right? It's going to sound like something amazing. Uh, and we, at, at that moment, everything will change. And you know, we sometimes get this feeling for y- young people. You know, I used to hear people talk about the end of the world, and it would always scare me. Does it kind of scare you all a little bit when you hear about it? Cheyenne's going, yes, it does. Because you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm 15, I'm 16 years old. I want to know what it's like to go to college. I want to know what it's like to, 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 you know, for Cheyenne drives that little scooter around. She wants to know what it's like to have a car. <laughs> What's it like to have an air conditioner and bugs not hitting me in the teeth? <laughs> and Matt and Pam are like, hey, bugs hitting you in the teeth is just fine. They're the motorcycle people. <laughs> And I want to get married, and I want to be a mom, and I want to know what all this is like. I want to be a dad, you know. And we think that. We think, wow. But here's the thing to remember about it when Jesus comes back again. If you're not a Christian, you should be terrified by the thought. Okay. But if you're a believer, imagine everything you want to do in this life. Imagine that whatever, and just know this, whatever comes next is going to be better than you can possibly even dream or imagine. So you say, well, what are relationships going to be like when there's no marriage in heaven? Well, they're going to, every relationship is going to be better than you could possibly ever have imagined. Because there's going to be no sin there. And Christ is going to be the light. So don't fear that moment when that trumpet sounds. But that's one of the things we should be thinking about all the time. See, I, what I've just done is I've just taken your mind, and I just set it on something heavenly, didn't I? And what, what does Paul call it? Hope. Hope. If you're looking around, if you're watching the news these days, none of it's good, right? None of the teams I root for win. And then I think, well, that stuff doesn't matter because there's a lot going on in the world. Then I look at the world news and it's terrible. And if I set my things, my, my mind on the things of this earth, there's no hope. But, 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 but there's an appearing that's coming <clears throat> that we're told to understand is the blessed hope. The blessed hope. Set your mind on the blessed hope. And, and who is going to experience that trumpet sound? Who's going to experience the second coming? Only one generation. There have been a lot of, there have been 2,000 years of Christians. And they all thought Jesus is about to come back any minute. And it's an interesting thing that God has set it up to where no man knows the day or the hour, isn't it? That's interesting. Because that means while there's only one generation that's going to experience it, Every generation can hope for it. We can all live in the light of that fact that Jesus is coming again. And that's one of those things that we keep our minds on. So we seek and we set and then we put off and put on. Look at verse 5. We'll go quickly to the end. Put to death. You know, I glossed over that. I glossed over that. When I, try, I try to just get these verses in my mind all week long. And I was going over the verses in my mind as I was uh, taking a shower this morning, actually. And, and I just started thinking about that phrase, put to death. That's drastic, isn't it? You know, here we are kicking along, thinking about our blessed hope and all this, and then put to death. Well, I, I don't ever like to think about that, something being put to death. Unless it's like a, a cow so I could eat a steak. Made in Texas, Shad. Or Colorado. (laughs) 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I mean, are we to just say, oh, the things of earth, let's just kind of avoid those. No. They do spirit, these things of earth do spiritual damage to us. Okay? <clears throat> what is the spiritual damage of having earthly teaching, having false man-made religion, setting our minds on the things of this earth? Look what he says as examples of these. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, covetousness, I guess we say that, idolatry. On account of these things, he says, the wrath of God is coming. God takes sin seriously, what verse 6 means. In these two, <coughs> you once walked when you were living in them. So whenever we're in the world, before we're Christians, we live in these things. We live in sin. We're controlled by the things of this earth. Now we're wrapped up and we're hidden with Christ in God. And so he says, so put these things to death. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. These are like the dirty clothes. He says, take those soiled, dirty clothes off, and I'm going to give you new clothes to wear. We put off these earthly things because this is, this is the... So, so what? These are all... We can get wrapped up in all of these things when we believe Satan's garden lies. How, do, how, would, how does a person get caught up in sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry? Um, he, mentions, he mentions more here in just a moment. How do we get caught up in these things? Oh, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. How do we get wrapped up in these? Put it this way. Are you being controlled by any of these things? And there's a lot there. There's like some that we know are sort of no-brainers. You know, we all know we don't want anyone to think we're sexually immoral. We want everybody to think we're pure. We don't want to have evil desires. We don't want to be jealous for other people's things. We don't want to be idolaters. But it's pretty easy for us to be jealous, isn't it? It's pretty easy for us to harbor malice in our heart towards somebody else. How do we get caught up in these things? Whenever you believe the lie from Satan, which is the same lie that he said in the garden, which was, you should just make your life about yourself. You know, if this life is just all about you and your pleasure and your desires and your feelings and your feelings of being slighted or your feelings of not being respected, men, then you just say, well, I'm angry and I'm mad because people are not treating me the way I think I need to be treated. And what you're really saying is, yes, Satan, I believe you. God's holding something back from me, and this should all be about me. But the reality is that you are here, you were made, you were created to glorify God, to enjoy a relationship with Him, and to do His will. We, are un we labor under this impression as Americans that we that the greatest thing that a person can possibly be is free. <clears throat> and we just kind of like, hey, live and let live. Let, people got to be free. People sing songs about it. People write books about it. They write poems about it. They make movies about it. We're like the greatest thing is a person who's liberated, who's free. <clears throat> you, we're not under the control of the king. You know, we started off that way, just in rebellion against the king. That's, our, that's kind of the way we think as Americans in many ways. 
But that's not what our founding fathers would not have said that. They would have said, we're, we're not throwing off the king to have no ruler. This is going to be a nation that's ruled by laws. It's going to be a nation that's ruled by uh, uh, the people. Okay? But that's not the way we tend to think about it. You know why? Because we want to do what we want to do. We don't want anyone to tell us you can't do that. But listen, biblical freedom is not the freedom of the self. Biblical freedom is not freedom of the self. Biblical freedom is when you're free from yourself. So if I'm really free in the Christian sense of the world, a word, that means that I'm no longer ruled and desired, uh, rule, ruled by my passions and desires, but I'm ruled by Christ who's a good ruler. See, my, my flesh is not a good ruler. It always takes me off into the wrong direction. It's going to only yield me bad results. But when my ruler is Christ, then I'm really free. Again, that just sounds so crazy to us, right? You're really most free when you have a king. <laughs> but it's true because you're free from yourself. You're free from the rule of self and you're, and you're free to be under the submission and rule of God. Remember our sermon from a few weeks ago. Some of y'all think you're free, but you're really captives. When, we're, when we just are all about ourselves, we're really captive to the flesh. <clears throat> and then we look at verse 9 as we wrap up. So we seek, we set, we put on the things of God. We put off the flesh. We put on Christ like a new garment. We put off our own selfish rules and our, our, our selfish desires. Then in verse 9, he says, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's hard, right? What does that mean? Don't lie to one another. Don't listen to false teaching. Because you've put off that old self, which indulges the flesh in its practices. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed. How are you renewed? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Romans chapter 12. So notice it's a similar thing here. You're renewed in knowledge. You're renewed up here as you learn more of who God is, what His character is, what your God is like, what He has done. As you're renewed in knowledge and, and, and you become more like the Creator. You become conformed to the image of Christ. The more I put off the old and the more I learn what God is really like, the more I'm living in the spiritual reality of my things set on the, uh, 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 the, the above, then the more I am conformed to his likeness. Does that make sense? This is speaking of the transformation that the believer goes through. Call it sanctification. Okay, your transformation, the, the, the transformation that you go through becoming more like Christ that is not what saves you. You are saved, and then you can go through the process of becoming more like Christ. But you can't even understand spiritual things until you're saved. Unless God doesn't work in your heart to make you born again, just like you were born the first time, unless somebody does something to make you born again, and when you get born again, then you can begin the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the transformation. As we behold who God is, as we behold His likeness, just like Moses went and looked upon God's likeness and he came down and he was shining with God's likeness, so what did they have to do? Put the veil over his face because he had that Shekinah glory glowing off his face. And now Paul says, but that's not how it is with us. We see God and we have an unveiled face and we're being changed into his image. We are shining like Christ. So what do you have? You have this world and its systems and its corruption and its decay and its hopelessness. And you also have its reservation for the day of destruction. And then there's this other realm. The realm of the above. The realm of the renewal. Where you're being made like Christ. I wonder where we are here. Are you concentrating on the right things? Because the Bible doesn't have a category for a Christian who isn't changing. Now, do we all change at the same speed? Do we all become like Christ the same way? Are we all going to look exactly the same? No. We're all different. We all have different relationships with the Lord. He relates to us all in in a special way according to the way he's made us, the way he's gifted us, the way he's given us talents, the way he's formed us. He's made you special. And he relates with us in a special way, each one of us. And it may not happen quickly that that you become like Christ. It may happen over time. And you may feel like it's one step forward and two steps backward and Sometimes the change is there and sometimes it's not. And sometimes the desire is there and sometimes it's not. But the truth is that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. What does that mean? There doesn't become a point in the Christian life where you stop in the middle. Not, but how many Christians think that there's a point in the Christian life where you stop in the middle? And they just say, well, I've, I've done enough. <laughs> we... we, we. We uh, had a landlord one time in Tennessee. I'm just talking about Tennessee stories today. And this lady was a member of our church. And we lived in her backyard. Like, seriously, we, we actually lived in the lady's backyard. Whenever she got married, she said her husband and her father went out into the backyard and built a house there. And then years later, after her parents died, her and her husband moved into the big house and they rented out the other house. So Melissa and I were living in that house. She was an old lady. And um, <clears throat> she didn't like me. And she was mean. I'll give her that. But she was sitting there in the living room one time, and I said, well, well I can't remember what her name is. Said, well, well, why don't you come down to church? And she says, oh, I've done my part. <laughs> I'm done. You know, that was her attitude. It was like, I've quit. I, I'm not, I don't have to do anything else. I've done enough. Is that the way transformation works in, in the Christian life? No. It says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until when? The day of Christ. He's he's going to work on us until either we go to heaven or he comes here. And that's the way he's going to work on us. So where are we? Because the true believer, the true believer wants more of Christ. Think about that. The true believer doesn't say I'm satisfied where I am what does the true believer say 
I want more of Jesus. I want more of Christ. What does a new nature crave? If, if I am in Christ, I'm a new creation. I have a new nature. And the new nature wants different things. Because the old man's been put off and the new man's been put on, there's got to be real change there. If, you're, if, if the gospel you have believed does not have the power to change you, why do you think it's going to get you to heaven? Either the gospel has power to change people or it doesn't. And we love to see that change, don't we? The gospel is radical. It ushers in a radical new realm, a new reality, a new realm of renewal as we keep putting off and keep putting on. And then we're no longer constrained by the things of this world, the things that make people judge each other and kill each other and hate each other and fear each other. Look how radical this realm is. Verse 11 tells you how radical the realm of God is. The realm of the above, the realm of the renewal. Here in the renewal. And I read that, I read that uh, verse 11 here. And I underlined here. Where is here? What's he talking about? In the church? In heaven? What's he? He's talking about here what he's been talking about the whole time. In the change, in the transformation, in the renewal, in the things above. There is no Greek, no Jew, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free, but Christ is all and in all. That's radical. So the question this morning, what kind of sandwich are you eating? What love is preoccupying your mind? Heinrich Daniker, the sculptor who lived in the 19th century, it's said that he spent eight years sculpting the face of Christ in a statue. And when people would see this statue that he worked on for eight years, when they would behold this statue of Christ, people would cry. And they would say, you've really captured the emotions of love and sorrow in this, in this uh, statue of Jesus. And people marveled at his, at his work. And then someone came to him and said, hey, you did a great job on the Jesus statue. Do you think you could carve for us a statue of Venus, the Roman goddess? And this was what his answer was purported to be. He said, no. After gazing for so long in the face of Christ, do you think I can now turn my attention to a heathen goddess? Now, we can do what we will with the second commandment about graven images and everything, but let's just take the illustration for what it is. If I have my mind set on the things above, if I am seeking the things above, if that's where my gaze is fixed, and I've got it fixed there for so long, imagine then if I just make this my concentration, all this stuff, we'll say, and this is so great, I'm not going to waste my time down here. Now, that doesn't mean that you aren't to be a good citizen or a good church member or a good husband or a good wife. But you're a better all those things when your gaze is fixed here. This stuff will take care of itself. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then what? All these things are added to you. We don't gaze here and expect this to be okay. We gaze here and this works out. 
So does this world and its things define you? Does it own you or does Christ have you? Are you wrapped up in him? Are you setting your mind and your gaze on him? Well, keep putting off the old, keep putting on the new. Are you discouraged? Keep putting off the old, keep putting on the new. Do you feel like it's not working out? Keep putting on the, the new, keep putting off the old. Just keep going. So one day you can say, I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. I give my life henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. Being renewed by the knowledge of who God is. More and more conformed to his glorious likeness.